Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Hilma Wolitzer is the author of Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket. Hilma is the author of nine novels, four books for children, and a writing guide. She has received many awards, including Guggenheim and NEA fellowships, and has led fiction workshops at several universities and at the Breadloaf Writers' Conference. Her first novel was published when she was in her mid-40s. She's 91 years old and lives in New York City. Welcome, Hilma. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket Stories. Thank you so much, Sabine, for having me here. (laughs) You're so welcome. This is an amazing collection of stories spanning all of a woman's life, her relationship. Some stories all interweave, others don't. It's so amazing to watch through the years. Your first story came out in this book in, what, 1966? Yes. All the way through the coronavirus pandemic. I mean, What a ride. And just that there were so many, like some of the ones you wrote so early on could have been written yesterday. It's amazing. That really gratifies me. I looked back at them after I had to 
put them together into the collection. And I realized there were no cell phones, there were no computers, and yet the women's inner lives were very similar to the way they are now. And they felt a certain restlessness in their domesticity. They enjoyed it, as I did. I love being a wife and mother. But at the same time, I wanted something else, and I didn't know what it was. And then I discovered writing. Oh, that's so nice. I think that that restlessness and that feeling plagues a lot of people, right? People who are, whether you're at home or your career has been shifted by kids or, you know, having, having kids automatically just shifts something major in your life. And I mean, that sounded so silly to say, but the way you capture it, is so just on the nose. I was hoping I could just read this one passage, if that's okay, from Knights. You said, you wrote, what men learn is that there are some women in this world who are never satisfied, who move through their homes with the restlessness of day workers. Even their blood seems restless, rising and falling so that they are alternately pale or flushed and suffer from dizzy spells and capricious moods. I am one of these women. Indeed, I was. (laughs) (laughs) You still are. (laughs) And I looked like 20 times at the front to make sure that it said stories and not essays. I'm like, is this about her life or it's not about her life? Is Howard actually her husband or not her husband or just a character that you've been following for decades? Well, I do feel very protective of my own privacy and my family's privacies. And also, I think it's more fun to invent people, but I have to use some experiences from my own life. So I call it truth wrapped in a lie. (laughs) The most autobiographical story in the collection is the final story, The Great Escape, the only really brand new story. And I felt after my husband and I contracted COVID-19 and he died of it. And after I came home, we were in separate hospitals. It was a very traumatic experience. But after I came home, he wasn't there. I hadn't seen him. I hadn't really experienced his death in a way. We were separated before it happened. And when I came home, I was grieving, but it also didn't seem real. It seems so real in a way. And writing about it several months later, I must say, it made it real. And it also was a form of grieving and it gave me an opportunity to deal with it and accept it and go on. And it made a really big difference. It was painful to write, but it was also cathartic. I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm so sorry. Thank you. But on the other hand, we were married for 68 years and we were both past the age of 90. And that is a great gift that not many people get. True. Very true. But still, I was just, you know, yesterday, this weekend was my grandmother's, would have been my grandmother's 98th birthday. She passed away when she was 97. But just because she lived that long doesn't mean I miss her any less. Right. It's still from one moment to the next. I know you expect it logically, right? That someone you love is getting older and you should be prepared, but whether it's my dog or my grandmother or whatever, like even it, it doesn't make it any better just because you know. No, you've known her longer, which makes it in a way harder mm-hmm. in some ways. You know, my husband and I were so used to each other and so companionable. I didn't think I was going to write any more fiction at that point. We had a really nice old age. I have to say we had some 
illnesses and stuff that we could deal with. But coronavirus just blindsided us. It was just so shocking. And the day he went off to the hospital, I had to call 911 because he suddenly couldn't stand up and was running a very high fever. And as I say in the story, the EMTs kept yelling at me to get his phone, get his charger, get his pajamas. And I was racing around doing everything and then running after the gurney down the hall to the elevator. We live in a high rise in Manhattan. And I never said goodbye to him. I never said, I love you. I never said anything. We did talk to each other on the phone because a few days later I came down with it and was in a different hospital. And we did talk every night on the phone till almost the end. The final night I was told, and this really broke my heart, was that he was told on Friday night that I was coming home on Monday. And he died a few hours after he was told that. And he couldn't speak anymore, but he clapped. He applauded. And that was too much for me to even put into the story. I had, so I changed details and I also assigned the events of the story to those fictional characters who are not us. They were not my husband and me, but they lived parallel lives. And they were sort of like friends who had moved away. And I always wondered what happened to them. And by writing about them was the way I found out. And I'm still going to write about her again now, I think, I hope. I hope you do too. That was so moving. I'm so sorry you went through that. I just, that scene in your story too, when she chases after him and yells down sort of the elevator or whatever, I love you. And oh my gosh, so many people who didn't get to say the proper goodbyes. It's just terrible. I know. But you know, I felt isolated, but I didn't feel alone because the whole world was going through this. I felt as if I were part of something very large. And though, you know, each person's loss is tragic to them, the whole world was going through a kind of mass tragedy with this terrible virus. I'm not sure that made it any better, though. I mean, my husband's mother passed away from COVID. She was in the hospital for six weeks and her mother passed away before her, which is how she got it. And so she was 87. They lived together. And then my, she had it and then she went to the hospital and my mother-in-law got it. And it was this whole thing. And they had her put on a hazmat suit in the hospital to say goodbye. And she had to stuff it with all this ice cubes because she already had a fever herself. And anyway. So sorry. That's no. just, just awful. And then the aftermath of it was that you couldn't have any of the rituals that you mm-hmm. usually have. There was no funeral. Right. We didn't get together afterwards. I didn't see my children. They didn't see me. And not only that, all of my husband's things were still in the apartment, his clothing, his shoes were next to the bed. His toothbrush was in the holder. I mean, it was really, that made it less real in a way. And finally, more than a year later, when my grandsons were finally vaccinated, They came over and helped me both emotionally and physically because my husband never threw out a belt or a pair of socks, obviously, and his closet was jammed with stuff. And the boys came over, the men, I should say, my young men grandsons, and they stuffed everything into trash bags and took it to a charitable organization. And and it felt good to have them there to begin with. And my husband was a psychologist, but he moonlighted as a jazz musician sometimes in his youth, he played sax and clarinet. He played bar mitzvahs and weddings and stuff like that. (laughs) And I had his sax in this big box under, in this big case under my 
computer desk and I would rest my feet on it. But I was really happy to give it to my younger grandson, who's a musician. And my husband would have wanted him to have it. So that that actually felt good. Oh. But that's not what the whole book is about. The book no, no, is, no. I'm sorry. And I know I know. Even we... that, or even that story. That story is really about a long marriage. And it has some funny aspects of what marriage is like as well. Because to me, there's always humor at the edge of the darkness. That's a beautiful way to say that. You must be a writer. <laughs> no, and I didn't mean to suggest, I know we started talking about this, but no, this the, the stories cover so many different things. And the funniest part, I think, of the whole collection is when you're talking about Howard's first wife and they were tra- you're trying to figure out like the alimony, set, alimony and all that. And you said it would be cheaper if you just adopted her. <laughs> I, had, I had so much fun writing that story. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that cracked me up. That was Elizabeth Strout's favorite story in the collection, she said. She wrote that wonderful forward to the the collection. She did. That was also also amazing. So that story was called Overtime, about how Howard's first wife wouldn't let him go. And you said her hold on him wasn't even sexual. I could have dealt with that. It would have been an all-out war, and of course I would have won. There was something final about me and studying. I wondered why he was attracted to her in the first place. <laughs> yeah, and then she said, yeah, we gave Rini plenty of money, although she denied all legal rights to alimony. They were only married seven months, and she decided she didn't deserve alimony after such a short relationship that you can't even collect unemployment insurance unless you've been on the job for a while. <laughs> but we were always giving her money anyway. Ten here, five there. Ostensibly, they were loans, but Rini was hard-pressed to repay them. I suggested to Howard that we adopt her, that it would be cheaper tax-wise and all, but Howard seemed to really consider the idea idea, getting that contemplative look in his eye, chewing his dinner in a slow, even rhythm. I imagined Rini living with us, another bed in the converted converted dinette where the children sleep. It was, it was fun to think of that. I don't even know where it came from, actually. Oh my gosh, too funny. So these characters that have sort of gone through, oh, and I also love this in trophies. When you said Howard, when you wrote Howard's father died, moving Howard up one generation and canceling forever his coming attractions of life. That was such a nice way to say that, right? Because when you lose somebody, you're also losing all those things that you had sort of planned on happening. So I love how it's sort of deleting the coming attractions, if you will, as a, as a concept. What is it like to follow a character for so long because I get very invested in characters from fiction as well. Like I feel like they're real people and I, I want them to meet like (laughs) characters from different books. I'm sure would be friends. I want to have like a universe where that happens. That's a really idea for a book, by the way. I know that's what I really want to do. I actually asked two authors who I was just like, your characters have to meet because I'm, I always am connecting people in real life, but I was like, your two characters have to meet. Why don't you guys get together and write a story where those two characters, you know, interact? Cause, but anyway, they, one of them was too busy and maybe I'll come back to it. But then I'm wondering, should it be the original authors who write, who co have to co-write this book? Or could there be a book with lots of characters drawn from all the different books? I don't know. It's a terrific idea for a novel. And actually, Il Doctorow, when he wrote Ragtime, he had real people meet in the book, like J.P. Morgan and Houdini and people like that. And his editor asked him if they had actually ever met. And he said, now they have. So that's the power of fiction, I think. It's so true. I mean, who's to say, I mean, this sounds ridiculous. 
once you create these characters, like, aren't, don't they have some sort of space in the world in some way, shape or form? They become so real. I mean, I know they're not ghosts or I don't know what to call them, but I don't know. There's just something with staying power. And then your characters, right? This man, Howard's are bopping around through his life. And as you you live, you he follows your path, right? Where does Howard go? I don't know. Uh, it's it's a mystery. It's, it's a mystery. A wonderful mystery. And they do seem real to me while I'm writing them. And after I'm finished with a book, with a novel or even a short story, I feel bereft. I feel I miss the characters. They're yeah. good company. And I always said that writing is a solitary occupation, but it's not a lonely one because you have all these characters living inside your head so long they should be paying rent at this point. <laughs> Maybe rent controlled rates or something. Right. Yeah, <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I actually interviewed your daughter, Meg, like maybe three years ago, I feel like two years ago, three years ago. What is it like having writing so running in the family at this point? Do you, what is that relationship? How has that affected your relationship? Well, it's, it's even made it better. It's terrific to begin with because she's so much fun and, and we're really friends as well as mother and daughter. And, but we have this other thing in common, language stories we share we share work with one another we share first drafts and uh, Meg started writing very early I was a late bloomer and she was a very early bloomer and when she was a child she was writing these terrific little stories and she would show them to me and I would say they were terrific which they were and after a while she became angry and she said you just love everything I do (laughs) And realized that she wanted to be treated with more respect. She wanted to be a peer. So I was more critical. And then, of course, she burst into tears. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to find some happy medium, some balance between honesty and charity, which actually worked. And, and I carried over into workshops when I was teaching. 
because you had to be honest with the student whose work was up for criticism. Otherwise, you weren't constructive. But you also had to be aware of the person behind the story, of somebody sitting there with a fast-beating heart, hoping you won't say something disastrous, which is what happened to me, actually, a bad bad experience. In my mid-30s, when I began to write short stories, I took a writing workshop with Anatole Bruyard at the New School. It was a beginner's workshop, and we all had to submit stories. And the very first night, the classroom was packed. There must have been 50 people there. And he called on me first to come to the front of the room and read my story aloud. First of all, I had stage fright and I felt very embarrassed. And he also told me to spit out my gum, which was even more humiliating. And I got to the front of the room. I read the story very quickly without any affect and collapsed into a chair. And Anatole asked if anybody would like to comment on it. And a man raised his hand and said, that was the most boring thing I ever heard. Well, I wanted to cry as much as Meg did as a child. But Anatole passed me a note which said, the story is fine. See me later. And then he said to my critic, you have every right to dislike the story and to find it boring, but you're obligated to tell the writer why you think it's boring and how she might make it better. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I understood about revision and also about teaching. And after class, I spoke to him and he moved me into an advanced class where I read the same story aloud again. And they didn't like it either. <laughs> but They said constructive, they gave me constructive criticism, which was much easier to take. And I felt I was launched as a writer then. Wow. What a great story. And see, whatever happened to that guy? Yeah. Right? I mean, the critic, like whatever happened to the critic? Oh, everybody asked that. I have no idea. I don't remember his name. I do remember his face. He looked quite smug. Yeah. Well, probably probably nothing good happened to that guy, you know? There's karma in the world after all. <laughs> yeah. Wow. What types of books do you read? Do you love to read? I'm assuming you, I shouldn't assume, but do you love to read? And if so, what do you like to read? I like to read fiction, of course, and I like to read essays and I love to read biographies. I'm interested in people's real lives and their imagined lives. Right now I have O. William on my mm-hmm. bedside table. Yep. And I've also had to be doing some reading for essays that I was assigned to write for. Uh, I did one for the Wall Street Journal and I'm doing one. I just did one for the Guardian in London, in Manchester rather. And I had to choose books to talk about. And so I was rereading those books, Stanley Elkin's wonderful The Living End. One of my favorite writers, the British writer, Jane Gardham. Her book, God on the Rocks, which is a terrific book. And I'm rereading Sleepless Nights by Elizabeth Hardwick. So my shelves are bulging and <laughs> I just have to reach my hand out and I have company for the night. Part of why I even started this whole podcast and all of this was after I got divorced, I had every other weekend, it was so quiet, right? My kids weren't here. I have four kids of my own and was just so sort of sad and quiet. And this, this therapist I went to said, you know, as if you love to read so much, you know, with a good book, you'll never be lonely. And so that's like, that's it. I just like read all the time. I'm not lonely. I'm remarried. Everything's fine, but yeah. And that's where the title of your whole program came from. Yes. 
pretty much. (laughs) I would think that moms don't have time to write either. And when I began to write, I was doing it at the kitchen table. No one was really taking me seriously. First of all, I hadn't published anything yet. And my husband and I, we were two typewriter family. We had two standard typewriters. He was at one end of the kitchen table typing up. He, As I said, he was a psychologist. He was typing up his patients' reports. And I was at the other end typing my stories. The kids were running around. The dog was barking. And the, my children actually came home for lunch from school. They lived, their school was a block away. So I only had those couple of hours in the morning to be totally alone and a couple of hours in the afternoon. And no one really took it seriously. My parents would call up and they would talk to me in stereo on two phones. And my mother might say, you know, what are you doing today? And I would say, I'm writing a short story. And she would say, did the sheets arrive from Macy's? (laughs) As if I hadn't said it. (laughs) But then when I sold the first story of the Saturday Evening Post for enough money to buy, put a down payment on my first car, and which really made a very big difference in terms of my independence because we lived in the suburbs and I had no car. So I had to walk my children everywhere and wait till my husband came home to go to the supermarket to get groceries and stuff. So this was a miracle. And it was the Saturday Evening Post. And when I told my father, he said, wow, I read that at the dentist. (laughs) It gave it such authority and it did make a difference. I felt, okay, now I'm really a writer and I'm going to write a story a week or a month. And a friend of my husband said, well, you'll have a fleet of ramblers, (laughs) which is what I bought. Unfortunately, I didn't publish a story for three years. And then it was to a very small, prestigious literary magazine, but I only got like a hundred bucks or something like that, enough to put some gas in that. (laughs) And I realized I wasn't in this for the money, which was just as well. Wow. Just out of curiosity, where is your family from originally? You mean my parents? Yeah. My mother was born in the United States. My father was born in what was Russia, Bessarabia, Romania, Moldavia. I mean, it kept changing. The borders just kept changing. And it was not a literary household, but there was a real oral tradition. First of all, we were a three-generation household. My grandmother, an aunt, lived with us. Aunts and uncles were in the neighborhood. Everybody came over on Saturday. And I remember lying under the kitchen table and just listening among the shoes, just listening to these great stories. And this was during the Great Depression and during World War II. And yet there was so much laughter. My family really had a collective great sense of humor. And that was so uplifting during that period. Because I remember my father was out of work. Things were really tough. And yet there was a feeling of optimism and joy. Wow. Which I think eventually permeated my own stories. That's wonderful. That's so beautiful. I love that image of you underneath the table. Oh my gosh. That's just, I feel like it should be a little illustration or something somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And they spoke in, they spoke in English, broken English, Yiddish and pig Latin. (laughs) 
And I learned every language so that I could understand what they were talking about. If they didn't want me to know something, I desperately wanted to know it. (laughs) And it's that curiosity that I think most writers have. What happens next? Mm -hmm. What are other people thinking? How are their inner lives? And I happen to believe that everyone has an interesting inner life. Yep. And a psychiatrist friend of mine said, no, they don't. <laughs> and I she heard too many boring stories, but I, I still believe. And, and going to work when I was young and going to work on the subway, I remember sitting opposite a whole bunch of other people and making up stories about their lives. It was a way of getting through the boring subway ride too, but it was interesting. I I just feel that you have to consider the other with sympathy, empathy, and curiosity. I completely agree. I love that. All right. What advice would you give to aspiring authors, aspiring writers? Keep doing it no matter what. Even if your mother asks you if you got the sheets from Macy's, just keep writing. Ignore that. And also read your work aloud. If you read your own work aloud, not for an audience, but for yourself, you can hear the clunkers. You can hear if there's any musicality to it. And also read a lot of other people. It's like absorb, It's like eating language and, and you then have it within you. To me, reading improves my vocabulary. Mm-hmm. Suddenly, I'm just filled, filled with language. And when my characters come to tell me their stories, and I feel they do, I don't get stories. I get characters. And then my characters tell me their stories. And it usually starts with a sentence. And so I would tell writers to revise, to read, and just not to give up. You're writing first for yourself. Publication is very pleasing and also harrowing because you have to deal with reviews and rejections, rejections first and then reviews and then maybe bad sales. I remember, you know, my agent once saying most writers on their pub day say, when is something going to happen? And he hates to tell them never. (laughs) I feel very lucky though. I've had a really good writing life and I've had a good personal life as well. So I feel fortunate. This is a very strange time of life. I'm 91. I'll be 92 in January if I make it. And I'm alone and I'm independent and I want to maintain that independence, but I'm worried about it. And this is the next story I want to write about this character, Paulette, who was widowed in that final story. And she might worry about the same thing. And I wonder how she would deal with it, how her children would behave, what they would do. And I feel, I feel I'm going to write that story. I can't wait to read that story. I can't wait. Hilma, this has been so nice. I like, love you. This is like, you're, I really, I just feel such affection, even though I just met you. So anyway, thank you for everything. And I'm just a huge fan. Sibby, thank you for that and for doing this for other writers and readers and moms. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.